Welcome to Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson stories. I'm Christopher Tidmore in our palatial recording studios and historic magazine street in New Orleans, and we're joined by our host, the indubitable Curtis Robinson. And Curtis, where in the world are you today? I am on the coast of Maine today, where I am hunkered down. I have ventured out finally in the waning days. We hope the waning days of the pandemic. That is me knocking on wood. Um, was in New York City last weekend, and oh. uh, you'll be glad to know the Hunter fans down there still thrive. And looking forward to one day recording uh, once again live in the Palatial Studios. And uh, we're, we, we are looking forward to having you there and to being on the road, which we'll talk a little bit about later in the podcast today. But it is obviously our special monthly edition of Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 1972 to 22 to 24, the 50th anniversary of Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 1972. And I thought it was fortuitous that you were in New York because one of the things that's going on as hunters writing for Rolling Stone at this time covering the campaign trail is a rather large movie is coming out this month. And that, of course, is The Godfather. Kind of appropriate for 1972. Yeah, you forget what a big year it was. Um, You know, it's the... 100th anniversary this year of uh, James Joyce's Ulysses. It's a, there's, it's, it's a big year. It's a big year, and it's, it's, it's a big year to know what 1972 was. It's the Godfather. Uh, you think about Nixon. You think about these, and then you go to um, the campaign in March of that year. And for people who haven't read the book in a while or haven't read it at all, it's organized. The first part of it is organized into chapters. Hunter had covered the the election for Rolling Stone magazine, and when they, they put it into book form, which actually came out in 73. But in the 72 coverage, he kept it as he wrote it. So he didn't go back and comment on, well, in March I was writing this and this happened. So you really get a fly-on-the-wall kind of thing, and you, you get to see him sort of, you know, in February he had dinner at McGovern's and, uh, he's still not overly impressed with the senator as, as he would be later. And I've got to say, uh, Campaign Trail 72 is one of, you know, now it may be knocking on the door being my favorite Hunter Thompson book. I'd forgotten how good it was. And and, 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 um, and I would say that this is when you and I have gone forward the way this podcast started, because it remains to this day my favorite Hunter S. Thompson book. Uh, it is. Oh, the, and I, you it is know, the as much as it pains me to, yeah. yeah, as much as it pains me to say, you were right. <laughs> well, it's it's for for political hacks. This is the ultimate political book. This is this is living and experiencing politics on the wall. It is truly gonzo journalism in the best of political journalism, and it's the reason why you know political geeks like you and I actually love Hunter. It's not he, he, to us. He's a political writer who also happened to write that book about Las Vegas and some of the other stuff and came through. It's it's kind of a different. Yes, yeah, you, that you're 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 absolutely you're absolutely right. Uh, there are people in the sports world who are like shocked that he ever wrote about politics, but but you're absolutely right. For those of us. Uh, for, for the political crew, I mean, uh, we started March and, uh, you know, uh, when I worked a lot with Hunter over the years, one of my specialty was the subheads. If you ever read the Hunter books, of course, there's always the subheads. Uh, we used to call it the three dot journalism, uh, kind of thing. But in March, th- this is the way it begins. It's the, uh, March is in two parts, but, uh, March starts out with the f- view from Kibis game. You remember he was in Florida because that was the year George Wallace 
beat a field of 10 people, I think maybe 11, and he won, and he won with 42% of the vote. It was a huge deal because George Wallace was, was uh, we would think of him today as a, a, as a proto-Trump in terms of uh, the ability to raise crowds and that kind of thing. So it starts out the view from Key game. Enter the Savage, and I'm going to pronounce it Boohoo, which is, um, Hunter fans will remember, that's the guy who got his credentials and got on the train and uh, uh, interrupted the presidential frontrunner, Ed Muskie's campaign. And so it's Madness and Violence on the Sunshine, Sunshine Special. Lindsay runs amok. Muskie runs scared. First flexing of the big Wallace muscle. First signs of doom for the Democrats. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here, except maybe Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy, by the way, I think was 42 in 1972. And... Uh, this begins after a quote saying, the ghost of Kennedy's past hangs so heavy on this dreary presidential campaign that even the most cynical journalist veterans of the Jack and Bobby campaigns are beginning to resent it out loud. And, you know, and from there, I've got to say the, the March chapters, the previous chapters are really good. But man, the March chapter, uh, no wonder it's a double chapter. It just really kicks off. And, and you may remember it, it, it starts off with there. And, and what I like about it is it, it shows Hunter's ability to take a casual conversation at an airport or standing in line and really make it part of the insight onto the, uh, into the story. And him say, he projects himself uh, in, in a very analytical way. Um, and he really talks a lot about the press and, and the relationship with, with candidates. You know, he, he quotes, it's one of the first times he quotes Mencken of saying, here's, here's the quote, the only way a reporter should look at a politician is down. <laughs> yeah, and I, it, 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 it just gets better and better from that. He also, by the way, said, I try to, I try to make sure we note current events. There's a scathing series about the Playboy Club Uh on, on television right now. And there, there's a, there's a paragraph in here, uh, about not getting, um, uh, about being denied his, uh, congressional press credentials. He said, um, never mind. I said, I didn't really want the things anyway. And here's the quote, which was true. Getting barred from the white house is like getting blackballed at the playboy club. There are definite advantages to having your name on the ugly list in places like that. <laughs> Oh, so, crazy. you know, so it's like, huh, you don't expect that. It's not the only time, um, it's not the only time he, he really hits into to current events, but I, I thought that was a strange one. And uh, one of the things that people at the time are not really paying attention to is the fact that as as, as he's writing all this for Rolling Stone, people think that... Nixon's not a sure thing for re-election. It's a way. It's it's interesting how looking back on historical events, we tend to think of, oh, well, that was never really a contest. Why is you know why did they have the Watergate break-ins? Why did they do all that? My God, he, he defeated McGovern in fifty states. One of the things that's going on that he's not writing about in this chapter, but he's going to write about him later, is that there's some candidates that look pretty formidable from the center that are coming, not just Wallace. 
John McKithen of Louisiana looks like he's going to run for president as sort of the compromise between the Wallace wing and the Kennedy wings of the party. And um, that's, of all the candidates, Nixon later writes, he's, he's most afraid of John McKithen, who comes very close to winning the nomination. I mean, a lot of stuff, it was very much a touch-and-go kind of race in 72, and nobody really knew what was going to happen. We were out of Vietnam, but the economy, well, see if this sounds familiar. There's a lot of inflation going on. The unemployment rate's not too bad, but everything's getting really expensive. There's um, a series of wars going on in the Middle East at the time. We're talking Yom Kippur War. Very shortly, that's going to drive oil prices up the ceiling, the other side of the Black Sea. All of this is happening, and people are kind of unsettled by the situation, even though they just came out of, two, uh, of, of a long, perpetual, forever war. Does none of this sound remarkably familiar? Which compares these? Well, yeah, and you, you can talk about a, di- a divided Democratic Party going into an election, and I will grant you there is there's a, a wide gap between the Bernie Sanders group, the the, the progressives, and, and I would say maybe you would say the Joe Biden centrist. If if you want to do that, there there are probably you you could even say man you could even say Mansion. Yeah, uh, I, would, uh, I would say this sort but, of, but I, yeah. but I, but I would argue is that. That is that really bigger than a gap between you know George Wallace and and I don't know civilization. <laughs> I mean, let, let's face it, George Wallace. Well, and, and the interesting thing about that is, on the one hand, Wallace is and and this is he and uh, Hunter talks about this at length. On the one hand, Wallace is still pretty much a segregationist. He's not exactly that by seventy two. He's not trying to reverse and reinstitute segregation exactly. But he's, a lot of the themes that he's talking about, crime, uh, uh, crime um, affirmative action, so on and so forth, are the same themes we're talking about right now. And all of this is going on. crime. Up. It's amazing. It's crime, crime, crime. crime. It's right? crime. It's crime. Our cities are going to hell. Uh, I mean, one of... And again, I said, I've said this before. On the one hand, you get appalled. It's like, boy, we're, we're, it seems so much the same. And yet... You find it reassuring. Things are not new under the sun, but you're also, frankly, as bad as our crime situation was, in some places, I mean, we're not, we, we had the Black Lives Matter rallies, and there was violence that came out of them. It's not nearly as bad as some of the riots that are going to be going on in the major cities by summer of 72. So, I mean, there's, there's points of comparison of all of this is going on. Obviously, the big issue of the time as we're coming in through 72. We mentioned the last thing. Remember the background of this? One issue is going to be dominating it. It's abortion. Same issue that's happening now. This is making its way through the courts. It'll ultimately be ruled by 73, but it's through the appellate courts and people are saying, will you know, uh, this Roe versus Wade case completely legalize abortion or will it uphold? And all of this is going on at the same time in the background of all of these races, just like today. So it's I think it's very appropriate that we're, we're talking about the, the elements in March, because in March, I mean, to give you how perspective has changed, by March, you kind of know who the candidates for president are going to be. Back in, the, in, the, in this particular uh, junction in history, they haven't even had uh, New Hampshire or Iowa yet. None of that's going on at this point. That's later, and so, you know. That much has changed. We've pushed the political calendar forward, but other than that, it's frightening how much the past is the uh, is the present, or the past is 
more than the just the past folks. is not dead, my friend. Yeah. It's not even the past. <laughs> as, as, as to quote the Bard of Oxford, you know, um, for Hunter fans, I, ca- I, ca- I have I have a, a bit of a story. Um, the, what, it's one of the most famous Hunter stories about the the the, the boohoo, as I, I I used to pronounce it hobo, but he always corrected me the boohoo. Uh, it was essentially this person of the night that he runs into. They clearly uh, uh, do some substances, and Hunter's not going to take the train the next day. There was a thing called the Sunshine Special, and it was uh, Ed Muskie's campaign train, uh, the Sunshine Special, that was going to run uh, up Florida. And it was a campaign train, like pe- people do, people did, and will do again probably. And there was a, a so he. Uh, Peter Sheridan wanted to hit, essentially hitch a ride north, and so Hunter said, oh, here, I'm not going to go on the train, take my, essentially my pass, and go. So uh, Peter Sheridan takes the pass, runs amok, causes, gets in a lot of news stories, and in those days, the, the passes did not have your photo on them, and he was wearing Hunter Thompson's pass. Many of the reporters didn't know what Hunter Thompson looked like, so he got into the news stories as Hunter Thompson in some of them. Uh, and, and he actually disrupted a Muskie speech by grabbing him. Uh, the, the, the only good film from there was a, I have two connections to that that are weird. One of them is uh, our, our great friend, Ray Breslin, who just worked with, with us on the film, on a barbecue film, totally separate thing. He was there. He's the only person with a live camera at at that event. He re, he remembered it, and he he still he still he's on tape on a podcast where we ask him about it. In fact, he it, still thought it was Hunter S. Thompson. It was our second or third podcast. Ray Breslin's on. You can actually look at our directory in Spotify and hear the story in his own voice. And 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 Ray's like. Up until like until I met Curtis, I actually thought that was Hunter Thompson. He's he's pretty much yes, born about I'm it. Like, I'm like, no, no, it was not. But though, so years later, I'm at the Rib Restaurant in Washington D.C., and it came up, and someone said, "Well, they never who, who never knew who the, the, the that guy was." I said, "Yeah, it was Peter Sheridan." And it it's mentioned in Campaign Trail. It's not mentioned in uh, Shark Hunt, I don't think. But but in Campaign Trail, it's clear Peter Sheridan's mentioned by name several times, and uh, although it. Later in quotes is maybe it was shared and maybe it was some opportunity to be. But anyway, so three different people, unrelated at the bar. Granted, it was a midnight crowd, but three different people had Peter Sheridan stories. It was a DC guy, crazy. The all of them, one of them had to do with him being cut off at the bar and standing on the bar and urinating in people's drinks as they fled in panic. So this guy was crazy from the get-go, uh, cut a wide swath, and uh, no wonder he fits into March of 72 uh, campaign trail. It's, uh, it's, but I digress. <laughs> I digress. Um, and all of this, that's why we're kind of following this. We talk about, I mean, oddities with genitalia, I mean, Madison Cawthorn and everything that's going on here and all those allegations that don't prove up. But you also you also stop and say, well, he may not be able to prove it and he's probably crazy and he probably made it up. 
But it kind of sounds like something members of Congress would do. So, you know, it's one of those. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And it's also, you know, some of the people, some of the people that come into the book, that come into the narrative now, like uh, 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 Frank, and I always mispronounce his name, Makowitz. I was, I've been on panels with him and he's tried to teach me, but I'm slow. You know, at that time, he was, uh, he used to say in later years that he always knew when Hunter was coming to Washington because he would get, his, we would start to get his mail. <laughs> Hunter would forward his mail there, but, but, but he describes him in the book as a 47-year-old Los Angeles lawyer who, who was director of the Peace Corps before he became Bobby Kennedy's press secretary in 68. And, and he's... Um, Says there are people filling all the conventional job slots, but they are essentially they are front, essentially front men. Frank Mackowitz is the McGovern is to McGovern what John Mitchell is to Nixon, the man behind the man, and uh, that was pretty insightful. Um, that w- that was pretty insightful, and he had um, and he and Hunter were, were fast friends since then, and it's interesting they even. And a couple of times, it would it would be a stretch to say they traveled together, but they did take the same airplanes. Hmm. And then, um, it again looking at tie-ins, he gives he he gives the Democratic Party uh, a little bit of hell, and and, it, and one of the quotes that that's often used with him, he says, "How long, oh Lord, how long? Where will it end?" The only possible good that can come out of this wretched campaign is the increasing likelihood that it will cause the Democratic Party to self-destruct. <laughs> you know, and from there he becomes critical. And this 72 is going to be almost the end. It's going to linger a little into the 80s, but it's really the last campaign where the parties are for the most part still political coalitions. And uh, for people today who don't know, who who really haven't followed the uh, the history of politics, you know, both the Republicans and the Democrats had liberal and conservative wings, had pro-civil rights and anti-civil rights wings, had, you know, different ones. And you had um, a New York senator like Jacob Javits who would vote with a Democrat like George McGovern much more frequently than they'd vote with Barry Goldwater or... And, and and you get the you get the idea of how the parties do. It's seventy two, that's going to be kind of one of the last gasp of this. Nixon's going to be coast to reelection, but below the but below the radar in all of this is what is the party going to be looking like? Reagan, who had put his name in nomination sixty eight, is already going to be looking at what to do in seventy six. And just because Ford runs, you know, he still runs a lot of this on the, on the Democratic side. If we, Hey, the idea of the word socialist it starts to be used, and it's going to go into abeyance for several decades. But it's actually used in in this by Shirley Chisholm and others. So this is eight. You know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was a time of great joy, a time of great sadness. In fact, it was a lot of. Uh, it was a time very much like today, to quote Charles Dickens. So yeah, well, you know, it, it, it's there, and it and it's it, it's. Again, you know, um, I'll, I'll turn. I'll turn to the volume itself. Mm-hmm. What's left of mine's pretty beat up. It, this is another thing that Hunter fans will remember because it's got some of the 
It's strange how much of this book I remember is from this part of this book. It's uh, This has the part in it where he talks about uh, McGovern. Uh, McGovern lacks that sense of drama, that instinct for timing and orchestration that is the real secret of success in American politics. And then he says, he says this, and I'll get to the, the famous quote. The main problem in any democracy is that crowd pleasers are generally brainless swine who can go out on a stage and whoop their supporters into an orgasmic frenzy, then go back to the office and sell every one of the poor bastards down the tube for a nickel apiece. You know, it's, uh, which harkens back to McGovern's problem. Uh, he is probably the, the most honest big-time politician in America. And to quote, which is not quite the same thing as being the best candidate for president of the United States. For that, McGovern would need at least one dark, kinky streak of Mick Jagger in his soul. <laughs> I've seen that on posters. It's, uh, and I think that was, I think that might have been the nut of it, really. And, uh, and he says the only candidate running for president today who seems to understand this, and by this he means the whole secret of turning a crowd on is getting turned on yourself. The only candidate under, that understands this is George Wallace. Which, which might at least partially explain why Bobby Kennedy was the only candidate who could take votes away from Wallace in 68. Kennedy, like Wallace, was able to connect with people on some kind of visceral, instinctive level that is pro- probably both above and below national politics. I, I, you know, you, it all comes flooding back. And, and you, you begin to, you know, and, and I wonder why I didn't go to law school and be, went into journalism instead. And it was shit like that. <laughs> I blame yeah. Hunter that I'm not I'm not defending someone in court today. Now, I, I will tell you that it was because uh, I, I discovered Hunter obviously later, but it basically kept me in journalism because it was like, wait, this, a this is the kind of fun life you will have, even with all the crap you put up with that you can't have anywhere else. But B, it's kind of that intellectual question why did why did these things happen and you get to be on the sideline of history and heck for those who say well you know this is true of the time and what are we doing i point out to you the conversation of why republicans tend to like trump more than other candidates no matter what the issues are what it is it's because it's described as this visceral well but he fights it's the same kind of, it's the emotional connection that Hunter's talking about. It seems like he's not only speaking to you, but fighting for you. And that's something Wallace seemed from a populist south, the Southerners, and across the country. Remember, he's going to basically be running very strong in California. He's going to be running strong in ethnic suburban areas. But it's the same emotion. And it's the emotion Bobby Kennedy, while he's not playing this, has on the other side. I and mean, it's like, it's sort of the emotion of, how can I be the person that you want me to be for you? I guess is if you if you take the metaphor too far, it's that's kind oh, of the sure. first construction. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, as Hunter would say so many times, it's uh, it's us and them, and and he would say, you know, I I still think we can say that it's us and them, and we broadly know who us is, and we pro- we broadly know who them is. So with that, with that said, and I think that's what you're getting at is the the Bobby Kennedys and the Wallaces at that time were, were really addressing that for people. They 
you felt like they were honest brokers for your for your side. And it's hard to feel that way about politicians. You just feel like, well, they're saying, you know, we finally get someone who I think Bill Maher on HBO dwells on this, that we finally we finally get a candidate who just speaks his truth. And it, and it is Donald Trump. There's, you know, there's no censor between his thoughts and, and his, his uh, uh, I mean, speech. I don't want to bring contemporary politics too, too much in this, but this is the same man who in the middle, as the whole world is condemning Putin, and even he is giving speeches now condemning Putin, came out last week and said, by the way, Vladimir Putin, can you please tell us what really happened with uh, Hunter Biden? We really want to find the truth. Can you release that for us? In the midst of all of this, if that isn't a real stream of consciousness honesty from the core of you, because from political timing standpoint, it makes no sense unless it's what you value about somebody, and it makes perfect sense. It's one of those things where I've asked people and I've said, God, doesn't that connect? And he said, no, he's just trying to find out what happened. And it's, it's almost like they approve of the fact that his timing is terrible because the moment is truthful. So. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, well... All right, I'll 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 go I'll go back uh, uh, to to another example that I think translates. And uh, I mean, you don't want to overdo the Wallace Trump. Well, you don't want to overdo the Wallace Trump parallel, yeah. but you know that's assuming you can overdo it. But I'll say this: he talks about the Muskie campaign stunt of the of the train, and he's talking about all the uh, advanced thirty advanced men. All, all expenses um, uh, bring the spectacle up to $50,000, $50,000, right? Mm. Uh, but it bombed. It, it was nothing. Uh, and they, there's a story about it, of the politics of the past in the Miami Herald. In that same issue of the Herald, he says, right next to the ugly saga of the Sunshine Special was a photograph of a grinning George Wallace chatting with national champion stock car racer Richard Petty at the Daytona 500, where 98,600 racing fans were treated to a few informal words, uh, a few informal remarks by the governor, who said he only come to watch the races and check up on his old friend Dick Petty, who enjoys the same kind of superhero status in the South that Jean-Claude Keeley has in ski country. You know, the, that appearance at the Daytona 500 didn't cost Wallace a dime. And, that, and it was in every yeah. Sunday paper in the South. And, and if that's not an early example of using media instead of buying media, I don't know what is. And I would point out to bring everything back together, since you, you mentioned Bill Maher, another thing happened in March of 1972. The first pay cable channel premieres on coaxial cable in a few markets owned by Time Inc. It's called Home Box Office or HBO. Whole things. So essentially, essentially, we're just living in the in the uh, the, the 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 embryo of right now was 1972. Essentially, all things begin 50 years ago in 1972, and you can argue. But you know, it, it, it makes sense. We we were we were coming out of the Vietnam War. Uh, the Nixon. The, this is this is the big Nixon election, right? This mm -hmm. is the big reset. You know, you anybody can make a mistake first term, <laughs> second term, you got to blame yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So, so here it is. It's the second term. Kennedy, Nixon's about to, to win 
I don't. I want to say fifty states, but it was. It was forty nine states. 49 I think states. it was forty nine states, and the, he didn't win Massachusetts. He doesn't win Massachusetts, or I'm not sure he wins the District of Columbia. Um, so it's it's like they. they it's I love the way place. you consider the District of Columbia state. We're still well, fighting over that, you know. Well, I mean, uh, and and this this comes into the whole issue of the constitutional amendment being passed, giving them electoral votes. So all of this is happening at the same time. But another thing is happening just to bring in more contemporary politics. As America's withdrawing from Vietnam, it hasn't obviously happened yet. One of the things that's going to undermine the McGovern campaign is basically the draft is going to end. And suddenly people are just not as concerned about the war, even though it's kind of going to not fade in until 73. But... What is going on on the other side of the planet? The Marxist government of um, of Afghanistan—they've overthrown the the uh, the Shah, the um, um, the Emir of Afghanistan—and the first military advise, Russian military advisors are going to start coming into Afghanistan. The beginning of the end of what happens is happening in March of 1972. The thing that's going to lead to the collapse of the Soviet Union, and I point out, fifteen thousand. Uh, Soviet lives would be lost in Afghanistan, which is the entire total of loss we think of Russian lives in Ukraine in the last month. So, wow, that's inter- that's interesting. Yeah, so I hadn't thought of that. It comes through. So, on that note, how uh, fear and loathing on the campaign? On that, on that, on that optimistic <laughs> note, <laughs> fear and loathing. Yeah. On the, yeah. Well, now we can look ahead. We can look ahead to April of 1972, okay. and. Um, I am resisting the urge to read ahead, although I do know that April is when the McGovern camp, the McGovern campaign takes over. Things start going well, and we're 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 on the road to Miami now, which is where the the convention was that year. Uh, so anyway, that that that's coming ahead, and I, I know we're short on time. Uh, but, uh, we well, do we do have some upcoming. Uh, programming notes and we've got some interesting thing we're going to be doing this podcast from the national press club on the 2nd of may um, along with a new podcast that we're producing and it is going to be talking about what is you know what was happening um in the nation's capital at the time in may of 1972 and looking forward to what's happening around the uh in the rest of the rows so anyway um those those who wish to track that can uh, uh uh, can check our website, or they can uh, uh, monitor the uh, National Press Club uh, website. And we'll have that coming up, and w- along with an, an announcement about a new, we're going to have a new podcast coming out that uh, Curtis and I are doing. It has an interesting little sort of more contemporary blend, but where politics and culture come together from small place to small place that governs them all. And we'll yes, and, and, with, and, with, and with that and with that teaser and noting, we're only doing it because if there's anything that the country desperately needs, it's another podcast. Yeah, of course. And we're making <laughs> and we're shameless in that way. So on that note, Curtis Robinson, um, ed, uh, longtime editor and friend of. Hunter S. Thompson um, comes to us, you know, throughout the month on the Hunter S. Go- uh, the Hunter Gatherer podcast, the Hunter S. Thompson stories. I'm your host, Christopher Tidmore, from our palatial recording studio on Historic Magazine Street, New Orleans, and we will see you in the month of April. <laughs>